Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 140. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Oscar Hokia. A little bit about him. He's a regionalist Native American writer of literary fiction, interested in capturing intertribal, transnational, multicultural aspects within two tribally specific communities, Tahlequah and Lawton, Oklahoma. He was raised inside these tribal circles and continues to reside there today. He's a citizen of Cherokee Nation and the Kiowa or Kiowa? Kiowa, you said it perfectly. Kiowa, thank you tribe of Oklahoma from his mother is the Hokia and Stop families, and he has Mexican heritage from his father, the Chavez family, who emigrated from Aldama, Chihuahua, Mexico. You can find the Stop family, Cherokee, in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and the Hokias, Kiowa, in Lawton, Oklahoma. Family on his Kiowa side, the Hokia and Tasqua, through marriage, mm -hmm. organized the Oklahoma Gore Dance Club for over a decade, and he has family members actively involved with the Kiowa Tia Pia, Society, Comanche War Scout Society, and Comanche Little Pony Society. He spent nearly 20 years empowering Native American communities from his work in Santa Fe, New Mexico with Intermountain Youth Centers and the Santa Fe Mountain Center. He's worked with Pueblo, Apache, and Diné peoples. Currently living in his hometown of Tahlequah, Oklahoma, in the heart of Ch Cherokee Nation, he works with Indian Child Welfare, where he gives back to the community that nurtured and embedded the indigenous values he passes along to his children. He is a recipient of the Truman Capote Scholarship Award through IAIA and also winner of the Native Writer Award through the Taos Summer Writer Conference. His writing can be found in World Literature Today, American Short Fiction, South Dakota Review, Yellow Medicine Review, Surreal South, and Red Ink Magazine. His highly anticipated debut novel, and trust me, it's better than even the hype, it's called Calling <laughs> for a Blanket Dance, and it came out on July 26th. Oscar, thanks so much for joining me. How are you today? Hey, Pete. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited to be here and be on Chills at Will's podcast. Hey, hey I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I've been looking forward to this. Oh, man, me too. It's an honor to have you. And, uh, you know, speaking of like with the book coming out, it's what's today, the 27th. So it's been a month and a day. Yeah. What's yeah. that been like? What's that like that you were telling me a little bit before we started recording, like about some of the blitz, but like, tell me about that. How it's been? No, it's been good. It's been good. I mean, um that first day i think was a little crazy um the first two weeks you know how it was it was busy the first day was um you know like i had a television like a local news television thing early in the morning mm -hmm. and then i think i was recording like maybe it was npr okay. or something that afternoon and then i had the event like the actual reading event that evening and then between all that you know you get because it's book, book birthday uh -huh. everybody's like emails and texts and messages oh yeah. oh yeah it was just all like i remember that day very distinctly because i remember like getting up really early because tulsa that's where the new station was at mm -hmm. is about an hour away from my, my hometown Tahlequah. so oh. i got up like like 5 36 o'clock in the morning and so i could get there by you know get ready and get there by eight uh, and because we were going on somewhere between nine or so uh, and so it was just like um from like super early in the morning just nonstop the entire day oh, um but that was that was a bit of a ride after that it was more like um you know um you know like an event in the evening uh maybe i'm writing an article for poets and um mm -hmm. writers magazine or lit hub um just you know things that are you know i had to get done during those two weeks yeah. and but it was it was nice you know getting that and then you know so you know some of the reviews are still coming in mm -hmm. and um it's um so that was cool to see some of those start popping up because I think that what happens is they save them, like they write them early, but then they save okay. them for that week or that second week or, you know, or so, and then they start releasing them. So, you know, all that kind of stuff starts coming up and you see, um, you know, you start getting on other lists and things like that. Uh -huh. So it was, it was exciting, especially for, you know, I'm 46, you know, I'm, I'm kind of long in the tooth. Nah. 
to, to be a debut writer, you know? So um, for this to happen at this age, you know, you just constant gratitude, like every day you're like, oh man, I'm just so grateful to be here. You know, like that's just, you, you just can't help but feel like that. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. And then being able to get on the road a little bit, you know, just kind of local area, mm-hmm. like um, Kansas and Oklahoma area um for those first two weeks that was fun because you can you and i get to interact with people and just hear some some of the like personal stuff like as you're signing books they're like open up like people open up to you like oh this has been my life my life has been like this too and and being able to connect with people like that um was i mean it was just really gratifying and um it was it was it was good it was a good experience positive experience for sure have you found the the readers to identify maybe with one character more than another? I think, yeah, I think one of the, I guess the consistent thing that keeps showing up is the, I guess the emotional ride mm-hmm. of the novel, mm-hmm. like people saying, man, Oh, this made me cry. And, you know, I haven't had a, a book, you know, have a good cry with the book in a while. And it was, you know, it was nice to do that. Um, and I think that that was, I think there was an emotional, that's what I'm seeing most consistently is on an emotional connection mm-hmm. to the characters and to the book. And, um, and so, um, but yeah, I think that some people will have like a, a favorite character, you know, like I hear Vincent Gimasettle, a lot okay. of people talk about Vincent yeah. um, and he's, you know, I'm not I really, I really like Vincent as well, but I like them all equally. Uh, okay. <laughs> there, there's certain things about them that I like, you know, certain qualities about each of them. It's hard. It's hard to pick, but yeah, people uh, yeah definitely will bring up certain characters over, over other ones. Vincent's one that I hear quite a bit. Yeah. Quentin Quitone, I think he's very playful. So people mm. talk about him quite a bit too. He's yeah. kind of, even from a young age, you know, I capture him in a playful kind of way. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah. But yeah, people definitely have some, huh. some favorites there. So you, so you're saying you, that you treat them all equally, huh? You don't like one more than another, maybe a little bit. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to, okay. it's hard to pick, but you know, I do, I'm mean, Vincent is in, you know, one of my, characters that's to my heart for sure yeah yeah who, who wasn't who didn't have a lot of um you know wasn't around a lot of the book mm, uh, yeah but, but but definitely made a huge impression for sure uh, yeah yeah the the cover um first of all what did it look what was it like to like see your name on the cover as the author and then secondly like the the cover itself like so cool like what was the the idea behind that whose idea was it so that one was um so the artist, her name is Kristen Apodaca, and she's from El Paso, Texas. Okay. And she does these like really big murals like on the side of buildings. Mm. And, um, and she has that kind of Salvador Dali style mm. of art. And, um, and so um, Algonquin Books, they, she had been on their radar for a while. And they've okay. been, you know, wanting to find a, a work of, uh, you know, fiction that was going to fit with her style. And this, my book is very much postmodern in the way that her style of, of art is postmodern. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and so she read, she read the book and, um, and just had to come up with, you know, some way to capture that main character mm-hmm. and all the stuff that's going on with him. And I think she did a pretty good job. You know, I, that's, that's a tough, I think that's a tough job is to ask someone to read read a book and then now come up with an image right that, that captures this situation um but then you know like it, it, it was um so the the face with that split in half with the dollar bill and the sash that's what Kristen Apodaca did and then the um the art director at Algonquin he added the other elements to it so okay. where you get that grid pattern in the background that's supposed to be a symbolic representation of the quilt mm-hmm. and then the you know the colors um he put in all the colors as well and um and then you know like I kept going back and forth with him on on the cover like tweaking you know like mm-hmm. what about the blue because the blue is kind of more of a it's it's a little more royal blue than it is navy blue sure you know sure. and in in our culture the color is actually navy blue okay. but the issue with that on when on print is that that all that line work disappears because navy blue is too dark I see. and so. You know, like, so it was just a lot of conversations like that. Okay, so can we do this? Can we tweak that? Yeah. And um, I think it, his name is Christopher. I'm not sure if I'm going to say his last name right, but it's Mo, Moison. Moison. Um, but yeah, he was just really, really, um, really gracious with that process. And I felt like I was 
asking him a lot, you know, like mm-hmm. a bunch of little bitty tweaks. Yeah. And he, but he went with it. He went with it. So and it turned out good. I'm glad. Oh, definitely. I'm glad. Yeah. Definitely. So. That's, that's when you see in the bookstore and you're like, I want to, I want to know more about it. Right. Yeah. That's what, I, that's one thing I did. I appreciated about the image is striking. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a stunning image okay. and it, and, um, and it does, you know, peak does the work of piquing someone's interest. Mm-hmm. Sure. Would the, would the seven-year-old or 12-year-old or 18-year-old Oscar have believed that you could, you know, be on the cover? I mean, have you always known you're going to be a writer? Like, I'd love to know about, about growing up in, uh, you know, in those, it seems like those essential cities for you of, of Tahlequah and, and Lawton and just, you know, was it a print-rich environment? Were you always the one reading? Um, and, even, and also language, like language or languages mm-hmm. that maybe you, that you spoke or speak. Yeah, so whenever... I got reading my mother. She used to read a lot. Um, And so I would see her reading. And then, so I just eventually started picking up reading as well. So um, I think that she would read different. She read more like mystery type stuff. Um, She did read some Stephen King, but I started, that's what I started reading was Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then read a ton of fantasy when I was younger as well. I'm like forgotten realms and Dragonlance series. Um, And then, uh, Dean Koontz, Clive Barker. Dean Koontz, uh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so just really was then that, you know, really fascinated with that. And I was right, that's what I was writing was that kind of mm. um, fiction. And um, and then eventually just, you know, changed directions whenever I got to college. I was just introduced to a, to a whole new form in my um, late 20s and um, and decided to go, to go that route. But as far as like, um, and the environment, I, you know, I don't have there's I have other artists like my uncle Vernon Hokia mm-hmm. he's a he's a like a studio arts type artist he, he paints mm-hmm. and um and then and we've had other artists in the family like Jack Hokia um he's one of what we call the Kiowa six and so this historically back in the early 1900s there were these six Kiowa artists and they were pretty pretty famous back then mm-hmm. uh Jack Hokia was um my grandfather's Jasper Hokia, they were they were brothers, okay. and so that's how we were connected. But um, so we had those kind of artists in the family, but not writers. I was the mm. first writer uh, to come in, and um, and just I don't know what got into me that I was going to write. I just became fascinated with the idea that I could create a story and put it on the page and then hand it to somebody else, and then they would have the same you know experience that I would have. Right. Um, and so um, by about fourteen years old, I started with that but as far as with like language um it's very much the way um it's captured in the novel like I grew up you know hearing phrases and that's how it is in the community right now I mean there are language programs right you know some amazing language programs that are bringing it back Mm. and but whenever I was growing up it was more um, common to have like words you would know certain words you know certain phrases and just as you're talking you would just like you would just say it, you know, just in conversation, you wouldn't even think about it. Um, and so that's how I put it in the novel, um, just the way, you know, how I heard it. So it would be with both Cherokee and Kiowa were like that as well. And then on with my dad, I mean, he, I mean, his, his, I would say his primary language was Spanish. Like he spoke English, but real choppy. Mm. Like he could, he could say a few things in English, um, predominantly spoke Spanish his entire life. Mm-hmm. And um, so the way I would hear Spanish is that when I, we would go to Mexico and go to Aldama, I would hear, you know, like I would hear all this Spanish. I didn't I could understand some of it um, and I could hang out with my cousins and I could get I would understand what we were doing. And mm-hmm. we don't, you know, be out use slingshots out into the mountains and mm-hmm. um, and running around, around, running around town, things like that. Um, but I didn't speak it myself, you know. So I only knew phrases and words in Spanish as well. And so that's why it shows up like that inside of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it go, and it coincides with just the direction with, um, with language that I, that I'm fascinated with, which are like the intersections of language. Yeah, so you have, yeah. you know, Kiowa, Cherokee, Spanish, um, and English all kind of uh, mixed together in there mm-hmm. and just, you know, just laid on the page, like, you know, without a, uh, without a stop, you know, without a hiccup, because that's how yeah. we use it. You know, that we just say it and then we just keep going on mm-hmm. and the people around us know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, just always been fascinated. Well, I guess once, especially once I got to college and started to study literature, mm-hmm. 
I really started to become fascinated with the intersections. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm Kiowa Cherokee and Mexican myself. And so, you know, that's how I live my life in those intersections and just having um, that kind of um, interplay with language between multiple languages was how I grew up. So it made sense to me to become fascinated by that. Um, so culturally, intersections culturally, um, also um, with language, but also uh, vernacular, like uh, slang. So mm-hmm. I'm not just interested in uh, Spanish. I'm interested in Spanish slang. I'm interested in Kiowa slang, uh, Cherokee slang. So I use some words, you know, some of the words we use um, are, you know, um, grammatically correct, and, you know, what's far as Kiowa, Cherokee, and even Spanish as well. But some of it's slang. You know, some of it's just, you know, a colloquial way of saying something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm interested in, in capturing that dynamic as well, because of, you know, language is this living thing. It's fluid. It's constantly changing. Um, we have this autonomy with it. We can play with it inside the community. We get to change it how we want to change it. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just super fascinated by that, by that dynamic. Huh. Is there, um, is there anything in those particular languages that like, maybe, you know, maybe one of those kiowa or spanish or cherokee or whatever like lends itself more to like i don't know flowery description and one of you know one of those is more like i don't know like practical do you do you ever like break down like about those languages are those languages similar in many ways or do you feel like they're very they're very distinct i guess i you know i'm more of um community type of um um distinctions so when i think of kiowa community i think of kiowas being more playful Okay. Um, you know, cows are, um, I don't know that I just might be biased. I don't know, but, um, you know, like just really funny. Um, um, if they're come up with a situation, they're more likely to, to tease you about it and joke about it before they're going to get, they're going to say something like, um, directly rude or anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to capture that element within the Kawa community when it comes to language, the thing that I noticed um, and the way I play with it inside the novel is that um, is that there are certain things that a second generation or a third generation yeah, speaker yeah. would hold on to. And so it's going to be like yeah. grandpa, grandma, mom, dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so those kinds of uh, familial terms is what we tend to hold on to. But also, you know, to a certain degree, you know, some of the bad words, mm-hmm. you know, we tend to first, I don't know what it is about it, um, but I've, you know, I've noticed in my own life that those tend to hang on. Um, but so some, maybe some of those descriptors that are, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a little more biting um, tend to hold on. So I tend, so I, because I see that play out in the community, I wanted to to, to capture that inside of the novel as well. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, growing up, not, not, not growing up speaking Spanish, you know, you always want, I always wanted to know the bad words. And then yeah, now that, you know, now kid, that, I, yeah. Now that yeah. I'm a Spanish teacher, you know, the students, the students ask me, you know, the teachers the bad words. I say, no, no say nada, no hablo. <laughs> no hablo nada de grosería, no. no, no <laughs> That's funny. The, um, so who were some of the the writers or the the books or the works that that really you know turned you into a writer you're talking about like more in like the college days and like kind of changed your your paradigm like um, mm-hmm. who were some of those formative writers um i think that you know to begin with it was probably in scott mamaday that first got me um, fascinated with literary fiction um i think that just that one he was kiowa and i could I could see, like, um, I could uh, validate in my experience. Like, I, mm. like I knew where he was talking about. Mm-hmm. But it was also, um, and then after Mama Day, Mama Day kind of led me into it. But then it was like Marquez, okay. you know, like yeah. a, a ton of people love Marquez, and um, I'm just an amazing, amazing writer. Mm. And um, so I just became fascinated with Marquez and his language, his ability to describe his description, mm-hmm. his um, his work with symbolism. Um, and just his playfulness with the sentence, mm. um, you know, I enjoyed that part of it. But I think he's he was probably the um, the thing that really sunk me into literary fiction. Him and Kafka, I really got fascinated um, by the sim- by the symbolism, like Kafka s type stuff. Yeah. So I wrote when I first started I, 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 2006, from 2006 2007, 
I was writing these native um, Kafka-esque type um, stories. And they were like trickster stories that were really absurd. Mm-hmm. And, um, but they, they spoke to like larger societal themes. Um, and I thought that's what I was going to do because I was just super fascinated with that, with that style of writing. And then eventually I landed on Alice Monroe. Mm. And I don't know what it was. I mean, she's a Canadian author. And here I am, this native Oklahoma boy. You know, we're like radically two different people. Um, but there's there was something about the way she would write um, that was alluring. And so I just became fascinated with her writing as well and just started studying it, you know, in and out. Mm. And um, and so but I think that that's what it was at. It was in college when I decided to to switch over to literary fiction and it was um, around 2008, 2009, when I started to develop this style, this kind of intertribal, um, okay. which started out specifically intertribal, um, because that's how I grew up. You know, like I have experiences when I was younger with mm-hmm. uh, my, my dad's side of the family, mm-hmm. uh, but my mom was a single mom. And so she she raised me between her two tribes. You know, she's she's full blood. She's half Kiowa, half Cherokee. Right. And so that's kind of what I knew. Um, and, you know, Eventually, I, you know, I wanted to, I could write, write that with confidence, um, but I also wanted to pay um, respect to the fact that I'm half Mexican. My dad's from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, my fam- I have, you know, I have family in Aldama, Chihuahua right now. Um, so I wanted to pay respect to that and just trying to figure out a way to honor it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then that's where you get the kind of transnational element. So I'm also interested in in challenging that border you know yeah move, moving back and across that border and what what that as far as an obstacle what what, what that means for families mm-hmm. just trying to visit not not you know anything you know there's all this other junk that happens on that that corridor mm-hmm. right there um but the, you know i wanted to talk about it in the sense of i just want to go see my cousins i want to see my grandma mm-hmm. um and what what is that what what does that mean I have to additionally juggle and deal with if I have, if I want to go see them. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, so many writers in recent years and way before have just have obliterated that, that simplistic story. Right. I mean, you're the, the one story, like you talk about there, you know, your, your mom and your family come from intertribal situations, right? Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no just, you know, one, you know, native American capital N capital A, you talk about all the different groups, all the mm-hmm. diff- like you talk about different generational groups within that right language mm-hmm. yeah. and then you know i loved how you had the shout out to mamaday and scott mamaday in the book right oh yeah yeah <laughs> with that part where he where, where the, there's a hokia yes he doesn't, he doesn't get invited to the party what, what was his first name i think his first name was maybe oscar in the book too it, well i just put there was a hokia walking out of a bookstore <laughs> I, I, let, I let the reader deduce that it that was. was that was cool i i I don't know. I don't think you call that an Easter egg. What do you, what do you call that? That's, that was so cool. I was like, Oh man. I I'm not that. sure, but yeah, I just wanted to just to like a little dig at myself. You know, like you know. I, was a, I was a nerdy dude that didn't get invited, but yeah, I had a bag full of mom books of Vince Scott mama day. Uh-huh. Um, so that was so cool. That was like, yeah, that's like meta <laughs> right there. Right. That is meta, okay. meta, meta. Yeah. <laughs> who, who hasn't, you know, you can, you can define contemporary as much as you want or modern, like who, who are some of the real contemporary writers who, who thrill you? Like who you're you know, reading today to get inspiration? Um, right now, I just kind of read uh, across um, just different cultures right now, just to, um, to get um, some type of something different, you know, like after you've done this for a long time, you've read a lot of books, you know, and you're just looking for something that's unique outside of your parameters mm. and i think that i've just you know read so much that that's what i tend i tend to do mm. um and so there's um a book that came out this year called valerio from and i can't remember i can't think of his name the um the author's name but he's from puerto rico okay. but yeah i was super fascinated by that book because it was you know one it was about puerto rico and this hurricane and how he just wrapped the whole um story around these events that you know when it the way the hurricane damaged the the island oh, um, wow. so but just stuff like that like just new things that are kind of outside of what i've normally might um engage with something culturally that's a little bit different um just to kind of give my you know um get a new perspective on yeah. um stuff but there's a ton of you know writers that are out there you know that are native writers that are um, doing amazing things you know like mm. you know we finally got louis erdrich to 
get the yeah. Pulitzer. Man, I've been I've been yeah. saying that for, for over a decade at least. Oh, like, man. Man, that was Erdrich has been a long time coming. They should have gave her a Pulitzer a long time ago. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, the, you know, like Tommy Orange, uh, Therese Mayett, um, Kelly Joe Ford, Brandon Hobson, um, Morgan J. Tolte, his stuff just came out this year. Uh, Chelsea Hicks, her book just came out this year mm. as well. Um, but there's just like, it's just an amazing time for native literature for sure. No so just super stoked about it. No doubt. I was honored. I was, I was able to speak to Brandon and Morgan. Morgan was pretty recently. Brandon was maybe a year and a half ago. But yeah, just uh, just talent, yeah. talent to say say the least. So that book is called Velorio, and it's uh, Aquino, Xavier Javier yes. Navarro Aquino. Yes. Yeah. Velorio is like the funeral. No, not the funeral. The viewing, I guess. Right? Is that what it means in Spanish? The viewing before the funeral, maybe. Maybe. Maybe it is. I think there might be a yeah. character in in the. Okay. That 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 ties it together. And you're talking about it's, it's about the uh, after the hurricane. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh man. So waiting for a blanket blanket dance. What a book. What a book. It's been. You got a you got a New York Times write up. Two New York Times write ups, maybe. I got um yeah well, I got the review and then I got the nine books um, right out this week or something. We recommend something like yes, that. Yes, 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 yes. And it's just uh I mean it's just a, a dynamic, incredible read. Like you said, it's it's a roller coaster of emotions. Um, the what was like the what was like the pitch maybe that you made? Like how would you pitch this book to somebody who hasn't read it, or how would you how did you pitch it maybe when you were before it was published? Um, that it's a multi generational coming of age story, and that centers on a uh, main character by the name of Ever Gimasado, and um, and it's told through the voices of his family and that the, the main, um, um, I guess the trajectory of the novel is that uh, the main character faces all these different obstacles. Mm-hmm. And then as, as he kind of overcomes them, you know, fate kind of knocks him back down, but his family kind of steps in to help him mm-hmm. um, pick him back up. Um, and so I would call it like a decolonization narrative. Okay. Um, not that, you know, like the process of decolonization, because we don't know what that, what it's going to look like when, or if we ever become decolonized, I don't know if that's mm. ever, you know, if we can even look at it like that, but you know, the process of, um, and the transformation that can, can happen within that kind of, of a narrative. Um, but I guess that's what I was thinking in terms of whenever, um, I really started to see, um, this novel come together oh. was looking at it. Like it's a, it's a narrative, a transformation narrative that, um, captures a process of decolonization for a character. Yeah, definitely a process. The the epigraph is from in Scott Momaday, you know, this kind of like a a quiet resistance, I guess you'd say, or a resistance like very like deep in the soul. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you find that quote? What what was it about that quote that made you want to use it as your epigraph? Um just the enduring quality like of native people um dealing with colonization and um and just kind of um, helping each other um go through these through these moments, you know, like um as opposed to like having some type of ulterior motive, um, you know, like I think we've always historically uh, wanted to share this land. I think mean, right now we still want to share this land. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, like there's this constant pressure, this constant like um, um, exploitation, you know, in, in today's world, you know, there's definitely infringement on our sovereignty. Um, and there's also um, this element of exploitation of, of taking this um, our, our identity as a resource like it's gold right like so that's the new gold rush identity is the new gold rush mm. and folks are coming in and trying to capitalize on it for monetary gains mm. and so we just got to really be aware of that sap that is still happening and um, and we got to you know I think on the center of the community that we are you know we're just you know trying to get through our day-to-day lives we just want to you know feed our kids um, take our kids to school, um, you know, get them through the day, teach them the culture, um, you know, teach them what we know. Um, but, you know, in that there's all these other obstacles that kind of pop up um, that we got to be aware of and that we help each other through. But I think that that quote um, captures that dynamic that we're still struggling with. Mm. And it's interesting to read House Made of Dawn and some of the obstacles that that Mama Day was writing about mm. back in the 50s. Um, and how similar it still is, oh, man. you know, and, um, and you can even look back at Zikala Shah, who is, um, she's Yankton Sioux, um, writing in the 19, in the 1800s. And, um, and even seeing some parallels 
of, of, out of her stories that we're still dealing with now. Um, So, but yeah, it's just, you know, it's a continuation, you know, it's like a, you know, like I said, it's a process and we're just trying to help each other um, heal through it and, and cope and, and, and manage all these different things that keep coming up. Yeah. Thank you for that. The, then also thank you for the family tree in the book. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a family tree, you know, that, uh, so there are so many important and intersecting characters and the chapters are, you know, by name. So like, and then year. So it's like Lena stop 1976. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I, and I correct me if I'm wrong. The whole book is in first person from different characters, right? Yes. Yep. It is. Yeah. But you also do such an interesting thing where it's like you, it's almost like a third person omniscient in a way for, for some of the characters, because they're like, they're telling someone else's story. And like the omniscient part comes in, in that like, okay, you can tell that, you know, so-and-so had talked to the other person. Yeah. Was able to talk about it as, you know, oh, so I know that, you know, I know Oscar did this because. So I just thought mm-hmm. that was really interesting and cool little trick in, in, a, in a crafting that really just, just worked. Um, yeah. That's, uh, um, no, no, no. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. So it's that peripheral narration. Peripheral. So you get like, um, not only do you get it with just like what you mentioned, like, you know, where, um, it's like it, it's not just the main character, people talking about the main character, mm-hmm. but other characters inside of the novel yeah. getting information from another character about the main character. No so doubt. yeah, it <laughs> does that multiple kind of layer thing. But it's so one of those instances is where Sissy um, talks to Lena Stop, mm-hmm. um, who tells her stories about every game of saddle. And so it's like it has those different elements at play. But it's exactly. it's just like um trying to be playful with the concept of peripheral narration and not be so um you know like um use it in just like one in one way but just wanting to capture peripheral narration in a unique kind of space you know and having it from told not only from another character but you know how does that look as it as it spans down to generations Mm -hmm. and then how much of of our identity is shaped by hearsay sure you know you know what I mean? You know, yeah. and I and I put in that word, uh, Gawoniski, which is Cherokee for gossip. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that's what that word translates to. So I appreciate that about the peripheral narration. That's a good word to I'll take with me that phrase. The first, I don't know if it's the exact first line of the book. I think it is pretty close. Quote, I always told Turtle when I was raising her, if a man acts like a child, then send him back to his AG. Am I saying that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and let him straighten and let her straighten him out. We've got Turtle, you know, who's the daughter of Lena. And they go, he goes, she goes with her husband, Everardo to homecoming i think it'd been 10 years since they'd seen he had seen his mom down mm-hmm. in, in chihuahua mexico and just so many cool little little details that you add there like as turtles watching them and how much they you know they love each other and how much they've missed each other quote they laughed with different pitches but the same rhythm and you know mm-hmm. mom mom didn't want to let her son go hugs and yeah kissing. but then which is an extremely um uh, pivotal moment in the book and it's really early on is where mm-hmm. Everardo is beaten by cops as they're coming you know I think they're 30 minutes to 30 miles from the border um, yeah. what was what was the what was so important about that beating how did mm-hmm. it really kind of like spider web out and affect the rest of the book yeah no I needed to capture male on male violence I mean and the, you know as you go through the novel you see where Everett Gimisato is on this trajectory where he's dealing with his own aggression Mm-hmm. And so um, and so it was a, a moment where I wanted to capture not only that dynamic, but also um, connecting the U.S. and Mexico um, in in that space as well. So mm. I'm broadening out, broadening out like the concept of of indigenous landscapes, mm. you know, to include Mexico as well, because a lot of times um, the dialogue is centered, um, especially here in the United States on the U.S. and also Canada. Hmm. Um, but sometimes we have a hard time looking to Mexico to see there's indigenous people in Mexico too. Right. And, and it's all turtle Island. It's all North America. Hmm. It's all part of the same continent. Um, and so I'm wanting to try to shift that lens a little bit, but also that this is the most uh, pivotal, pivotal moment in ever's life, according to Lena stop. So who narrates that chapter? Like if hmm. you went, if you went to his grandmother and said, Hey, 
what's what's the what's the most significant thing that happened to your grandson this is what she's going to say mm-hmm. like you know like he because this happened his he was present when his father was beat by police and um what it did in the native context is it witched him mm-hmm. and because it witched him it sent him on this trajectory where he had to struggle with this kind of building aggression where you know where he's getting multiple signals throughout his life to be aggressive in order to right. survive you got to be aggressive. Um, and so he had, a, and that's where it started for her, for Lena stop. Uh-huh. That's where it started. But so having that kind of moment um, at the beginning of the novel, you know, I wanted to capture like the intensity of how male, on, male violence creates this um, landscape of toxic masculinity. Right. And, um, and exacerbates, you know, those, those more subtle dynamics that, sure. you know, that where toxic masculinity comes into play, but yeah, just to show that the main character has to, has to overcome something, you know, that's that significant. No doubt. There's, you know, and so there's, I mean, it's really symbolic of like the mother and daughter where, you know, um, Lena, Lena says, you know, Hey, come back, come back to Tahlequah, right. Come mm-hmm. back to Tahlequah, you know, like closer to the, to the Cherokee nation, et cetera, you know, get, like you said, for the witching, get help. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the daughter's kind of like, now nah, I want to go to Lawton, you know, for her different reasons. But yeah, I mean, just even just reading the beating, the beating scene, it's just like, what do you, why, you know, why, why are these cops doing that? What, why are they getting so worked up? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and you think about the poor ever who's, you know, in the car there is a little baby. I mean, very little. And just like, you know, why even, you know, when, uh, when turtles like on her knees, like begging, like, why even would they, why even would these men give in if they've mm-hmm. already, you know what I mean? Just like, what is going through their minds basically, like you said, and, and it definitely captures just that toxic masculinity and just, just violence for, for no reason, you know? I mean, yeah, well, I think that um, one is the call to God. I think that, there uh-huh. is, yeah, where she goes for, for God in, in the eyes of God, you know, she calls to God. And I think that that like, that pulls them, yeah, that pulls them out of it for a moment. Uh, but like, right. Say, okay. Okay. Wait a minute. You know, what am I doing? Yeah. And it gets them to change his trajectory. I think uh-huh. she, yeah, there's a moment before that where she recognizes that that call to God is going to alter their perspective. Yeah. But they still took the money, right? <laughs> yeah no it's, they, they, they didn't feel yeah, that bad they didn't feel that bad no they're i mean it's, it's it's yeah the economic system at play right hmm. you got super impoverished people um going to exploit each other right um, at that border right and so that's one of the things that happened in my memory a part of what um, my experience was at the border hmm. um in my own personal life like whenever hmm. i was two and three so this is this is based off of my own um, experience. Oh, wow. um, one of my earliest, my most me- earliest memory was whenever we went to Mexico and um, we were stopped by the Mexican police and that's what they wanted. Hmm. They wanted, they wanted money from us and they, they took you know, like my dad had boots on and they, they took it out of his boots, hmm. um, but they didn't stop there. So the ultimate victim in the real experience of my life was my mother. Uh-huh. Um, and so, so what I do is I tend to take like real experiences and then I switch it to fit more of a plot that's happening in the novel. Mm. Um, and so I put it more of a male, male on male type violence as opposed to what really happened in my personal life. Um, but, to, but to deny that that doesn't happen mm. on the border is, um, is like erasure. You know what I mean? If you I don't want to talk about, if you don't want to talk about it, um, then we're not going to change anything. Sure. Vin- Vincent is uh, per- portrayed as, as kind of talked a little bit, you know, he's flawed for sure, but I mean, he's, he's lovable turtle is falling in her mom's footsteps in many ways um, ever, I guess, because he's so cute, he kind of helps with the home loan. Right. Oh yeah. And, you know, just this idea of like the living situation and it go, it, the book goes from pardon the pun home plate to home plate with ideas of, you know, of home and that forever home. And um, you know, just the idea of, of finding that place to live. Vincent's story is second, and this skips ahead. What is this? Maybe five years. Yeah, they are, each chapter skips three to five years. Yeah, so eight days and counting for him to be sober. Um, and you know, these five years later, Evardo is. You know, you talk about like masculinity. He's. Not, I don't even know if it's masculinity, but just like dignity, right? He because of that injury from that beating, he you know he's he's a mess. He's not yeah. able to do very much. Yeah, um, no, he can't work. And so then this idea of that he he may be dying or he's at least in, in physical um, you know pain big time. What is what's Vincent's secret and how does he how does he live that out? Being that he's the only one, at least within the family, who knows his secret. How does he 
what does he do with that knowledge? Yeah, yeah, that he's tormented his family for a long time being being an addict and that he is is not going to in this last moment do it again. And it's sad. It's, it's sad that, you know, I mean, it's sad for many reasons, but, you know, he, he starts to establish a relationship with his grandkids, you know, picking them up at school and all of that. He's proud of himself or mm. at least not mad at himself for, for staying sober, you know, so that he can be some sort of rock, help out his daughter, help out the kids. He does miss one day and then, you know, loses her trust again. I mean, where did you come up with this idea of Vincent as like just running out of time? You know, you want you want him to give be given more time, more time, more time. And obviously and he's not given that time what was it about that cirrhosis diagnosis and you know just him living out his days and trying to do something well like redemption where did that come from i guess well i guess it had to do with you know it's based off of my own personal like family um stories with my grandfather um who passed away when he was making my gore dance me and my uh, cousin Quin- me and my cousin quincy Tashikwa, um he was making our gore dance regalia oh and wow he, and he had passed away before he could finish it and so just hearing that over the years, like I don't have any memory of my grandfather, um, but just hearing stories about him mm-hmm. and about that situation and, um, and then, you know, wanting to capture that, I guess that sense, that feeling of, of someone wanting to, you know, fix things in the last moment. And then what kind of legacy does he leave for his grandkids and right. just the, the memory he's going to, he's going to, you know, how are they going to remember him or his family is going to remember him for his grandsons. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, there's something incredibly affecting about him, like, you know, working on that regalia. One of the quotes is, quote, I didn't have to explain any part of the dance to them, them being the grandkids. They watched me and the other men and mimicked us. I was amazed at how quickly they followed in my footsteps. And then it scared me. That mm-hmm. that short sense, and then it scared me, you know, makes you think of, are they going to follow him in the, in the negative ways too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the end, he, he says, he writes, quote, but in the end, had I done enough, I know, I know I chose alcohol over everyone. Can a failed father redeem himself with the hearts of his grandchildren? Ooh, it's a heck of a, a beautiful phrase right there. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah, just that, you know, wanting to capture that sense of uh, carrying forward, like, you know, just, that, you know, growing up with that memory of my grandfather mm-hmm. um, and just thinking like, how would, what would be his final act of love? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how would he try to do something in the final moment to, um, to say, I love you, even though, you know, really, I don't know if he could say, I don't know if Vincent Gimasato can outright say that directly, but you know, like the, the regalia and just, you know, him making the effort to change things. And even if it's in the final moment, that it is something um, to give a signal that this character is going to move on potentially a different path. Right. So, you know, as the book moves on ever, I mean, ever, as ever's grown up, you know, Everardo is, is violent. Everardo is abusive. Mm-hmm. Everardo is someone to be feared, you know, by his son, by his wife, but ever gets, you know, he's aggressive as heck, but he gets mm-hmm. a little gift in that. Is it pronounced booger, booger mask? Yeah. So the traditional um, Cherokee mask. And so we call it, so booger mask is kind of like saying boogeyman. Okay. Um, so like my grandmother would say, um, you know, we'll call a monster a booger. Mm. Um, so it's generational mm-hmm. um but we still call them booger masks yeah and so in that yeah just the the act of healing the traditional um practice of using masks in a way to heal the community um symbolically trying to the uh, the uncle's trying to heal um, his nephew with that mask but it shows up again later in the novel as well you were you were in your zone the end of that section with Hayes shade is quote he stared at it like it being the mask looking like into it into a mirror as if a distorted version of himself stared back time like masks could make us reclaim the best of who we were and purge the worst of what we'd become ever ever face the mask face his fears and i hope the mask healed him the way it once healed all cherokees that that goes throughout the book i mean you know with the with the quilts of course that come later and just i'm not you know it's not like all problems in ever's life go away Mm -hmm. but it's something that you know there are so many the little gifts little community mm-hmm. bonds that just you know get him through right like you said day to day yeah i think it's the um the magic of familial love you know mm. like the family puts the lena puts her her love into the quilts right um, Vincent puts his love into the into the gore dance regalia um his uncle puts his love into the into the masks to try to heal him um and then ever you know eventually 
transfers that you know later mm-hmm. in the novel yeah and we get um we get Lila who's narrating Ever's visit with his father to go to the Quintanera down to mm-hmm. down in Mexico right is that that's Araceli I believe Araceli yeah just a really the really interesting phrase and I, I you know I think not being a native speaker but I think I understand its its implications but he's like he wants Ever to come in Ever is incredibly antisocial right mm-hmm. like hey come inside because Everardo's you know he's yucking it up he's having drinks he's kissing the woman on the neck which upset ever and ever doesn't want to come in and the father comes out and makes a try and basically it's just like ni modo like, like you know it is what it is you know it is what it is and that just sums up so much about about his about his the way he deals with his family right like well gave it a try yeah it is yeah. what it is kind of like giving up in some ways and, yeah i think that part of it has to do with that it was too little too late mm-hmm. i think too too much history had right. transpired um and um and so ever you know leans back on his um his aunt and his mom mm-hmm. you know in that in that moment and so i think that it, it was just one of those moments where it was too little too late right. and um and it, it, and even inside of that particular chapter lila mentions that she understands that because her you know vincent was like that yeah yeah, yeah. you know you know um, vincent was very similar in his way of looking at the world as well right so, yeah a lot know. of repetition through the generations mm-hmm. right yeah, and then uh, we see that again with Lonnie. No water. No, no doubt. Yeah, Quinn, like you said, is a, is a, has a fun little, a fun chapter. Like it's, it's mostly about the parties they have with the per caps. They get it. Is, per caps are every year. Well, no, I mean nowadays there are some tribes who do give them out like okay. once a month or maybe once a year. Um, back then for Kiowa specifically, um, we just got it when we turned eighteen. Ah, yes, yes, yes. So it's yeah. like living it up and, you know, do we buy a car? Do we put it in savings and just, you know, that's mm-hmm. good, get some good times. Right. Mm-hmm. That's where this, uh, this, this Hokia character possibly named Oscar makes his appearance. Yeah. He <laughs> doesn't get invited to the party. So, so Eduardo, Eduardo passes away and it's, it's kind of quietly. It's, um, it's at the same time, pretty much as the news for, of, of Sissy, Sissy is Yolanda. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's her, right. Sissy is her nickname. Yeah. And that's a, com- a common nickname here in the, in the South. It's like, oh, okay. Her getting pregnant and just this idea of Turtle feels like her and Navarro were the same as like this tank and Sissy. She feels like, again, you know, repeating itself, history repeating itself. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm yeah. so interested in that chapter. A lot of that chapter is just like what she wanted to say. She wanted to say so mm-hmm. much to her daughter, but it was just instead of saying yeah. it's safest at home, she watched her shows. Instead yeah. of saying, you know, don't head out on the town. She watched your show. She was quiet about it. Yeah. And just the idea of like, I guess, communication I that, or lack thereof. Go ahead. Um, no, I think it's her personality. Mm-hmm. And so she is based off of my mom and who was super quiet. Okay. You know, like not everybody has the same personality in the community. And sure. so she has, you no, know, she's more quiet, uh, unlike her mom, who is very like mm-hmm. headstrong. But um, the interesting thing about those if you if you juxtapose Turtle Game of Satellina stops chapters, is that they're both going through this moment where their kids are their own and they mm-hmm. can't control them. You know, mm-hmm. like you get in, you know, like as a parent myself, I remember distinctly those moments where my my kids were like, you know, like all I can do is I gotta guide them and I gotta give them advice and mm-hmm. you know, I was a pray and pray that they're gonna make the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's part of what I want it's that she's a quiet person. Yeah. Um, and then also that she, her kids are, be, are adults are becoming adults and they're kind of, uh-huh. they're, they're doing, it's hard to, you know, stop them the way it was hard for Lena to, to, um, to get turtle to do what she wanted. We, we, we see, you know, uh, ever as he continues to get older, maturing more or less, definitely has some, you know, some, some pit stops, if you will, but he marries. So one of the chapters, the next chapter is, was, was Yolanda or Sissy in 1999, a few years later. Lonnie ever just fall in love or fall in lust. I'm not sure which one, right? Mm-hmm. And you yeah. know, can't, can't, can't get their hands off each other. And he's going to Korea. He's, you know, he's decided to join the military. Again, a lack of, you know, lack of communication. Sissy is just thinking, okay, I don't want to ruin this or whatever. But she just sees really bad signs that Lonnie is, you know, is trouble or troubled, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. unfortunately, yes, she becomes, uh, you know, addicted to meth she's cheating or at least um you know teasing in that way and that's something where you know they have kids together but they don't end up together down the road right? yeah so that's um so Lonnie um yeah that situation um very similar in the sense that ever Gima saddle mm-hmm. um is like his mom and that she he deals with Lonnie 
the way his mom dealt with her de- his dad. Right. Uh, so they're both addicts, right? Her, his, his, his dad was an alcoholic. Lonnie becomes a meth addict. And so they're dealing with each other in the same, um, in the same, in a similar way. Um, but yeah, the, you know, with Lonnie, with addictions to meth, and I just see, you know, working in Indian child welfare, mm-hmm. I see the residuals of this all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and just in the community, I live in the community and see the way a lot of this stuff plays out. But, you know, like, you know, it's a male, meth is a male dominated mm. world. Um, and in order to survive in it, um, I think Lonnie does things to, um, to get her meth, right. but also to survive in it. She's got to survive in it. Right. without narrating every piece of this novel because people need to read it you i can't think of a single character who is detestable let's say i mean even you know lonnie comes back later in the book Mm -hmm. um, and you know you feel sympathy for her you feel sympathy or you feel empathy um you know jimena becomes uh becomes ever's wife later on and Mm -hmm. you know we get to know her through i think one of the aunts who has a visit with her. And it's just a beautiful visit where it's like, like you talked about, like the chisme, right? Or the word in Cherokee, where it's like mm-hmm. that gossip, you get to think, you know, people. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you, sometimes you have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No. Yeah. How much, how much of what we know about each other is hearsay and how much yeah. of you know, what we perceive of each other's identity mm-hmm. is based on hearsay. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things whenever I write my characters, like even Eduardo, like to ever Gima saddle, Eduardo was an abusive person and he just didn't want anything to do with them. Um, but to um, Adeseli, his cousin, that was her favorite uncle. Right. You know, yeah. like he was funny and he was the center of attention, made everybody laugh. He, he loved the Oklahoma accent. He tried to, mm-hmm. he tried to use it the best he could, that Oklahoma accent. And, you know, the family loved him. Um, and so it was important for me to have that perspective. You know, it was important that, you know, and I think that, you know, I just wanted to be respectful of all the characters. Mm-hmm. And like you mentioned with Lonnie coming back later. And I think one, one, one question that the readers got to answer for themselves is does, does Lonnie and ever get back together? Right. Are right. they back to by the, you know, read that those last few paragraphs real close. Hmm. And, and you, I mean, it's, I mean, it's kind of, I put it in there in a way that allows a reader to decide. Yeah. If they, and if they do get back together, what does that mean? Right. So, well, yeah, and there's, um, you know, like, you know, Jimena and Ever lost their their baby, which was incredibly gripping and sad and just, you know, de- depressing and depression inducing for her. And again, mm-hmm. you know, you, you feel you feel for them, you feel for her, um, yeah, right? Sure. You know, we have we have Leander, who's kind of like a, like a surrogate, he, not kind of, I mean, his surrogate son to Ever, and you see you see Ever doing work, being a healer in his own way, and Leander, you know, you, you might call him a a juvenile delinquent or something like that in old times. And it's like, he, there's this double meaning where he says, how did I get here? When he's mm-hmm. literally like in this inc- impossible situation, you know, yeah. escaping the cops and you, you see his growth too. You see his, his progression and you, and he, you know, he's honest. See, there's a time when he wants to stab ever with a pencil. Yeah. 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 Right? He, he imagines it, right. I'm yeah. going to stab him in the neck. The car is going to crash mm-hmm. and then I'm going to jump out and I'm going to run, you know, like he, he, he sees it all happen. And, um, and and so yeah, I mean he's in he comes from parents that are really aggressive. And um and so like he, he's like, I've seen my father do this before. Mm. So I so I you know, I know I can do it. Right. Um so yeah, yeah, it's just a really, you know, um powerful kind of exchange between him and ever. Powerful the way you do it. I mean, you, you just you just see, you hear his desperation. You you, you know he's just a hopeless person. Mm. Right. You know, better than I do, you know, working in the field that you do, like father, father, Greg Boyle out there with homeboy industries. Mm-hmm. You know, he always says, you know, not no, no people with hope, no youth with hope join gangs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, they don't, they don't have hope. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and with Leander, you see the, the hope, but you see hope come, you see hope come with ever. Yeah. And then that's one of the, you know, an important moment inside of that particular chapter is whenever Leander, you know, he draws, right. Like sure. that's the, that's that's the medicine um yes. and then so he's drawing this this image of this park in Lawton, you know it's just this mm. park with this big canal um but so whenever the real he's drawing from memory like the last time i see my dad he was with these group of native dudes 
and he had this big stick and he like busted someone over the head. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so that's what that was in his memory. But he goes, but what wasn't in the, what's in the picture that I drew that wasn't in my memory is this water in the canal. Hmm. Right. So that water becomes representation because the last line in that particular chapter references the water because you know like hope um, rises with like water. Yes. Um, but then you look back too. You juxtapose them to Lonnie. Her last name is No Water, right? Mm. So Lonnie No Water, and Lonnie, nobody gave her any expectations. Yes. And so in this moment where Leander comes, where Ever and Leander exchange with each other, Ever comes in and gives them expectations. Mm. And so he draws in the water. So right. There's, you know, so so then that's the difference between those two whenever you juxtapose them. Oh yeah, I, I had I had a great some notes about. There was a great quote, like you said, something about the. The idea of expectations. I'm not going to find it, but but yeah, just that the hope comes from him, you know, giving him some responsibility, give him a pencil, giving him some paper. Here's something to draw. Here's a place to draw. The last couple of chapters, you know, there's about the quilt and the mm-hmm. quilt uh, and this 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 hunt for the the four quilts that have the names. And there's so much there about connecting family. There's so much there about like personalization for each each of the kids and the grandkids and great grandkids. Yeah, that love. Oh my gosh. And the last chapter, well, so in that the is where the blanket dance is mentioned in the the chapter um about mm-hmm. the quilts, right? Yeah. Is am I correct in saying that calling for a blanket dance is like a it's like a benefit. It's like a it's like a mutual aid society. Yeah. That well, that particular act is like that. It's very much it's like you're at church and you're one of your church family, they need help. Right. And the pastor gets up there and says, all right, congregation, can we help this family? And we're going to pass around the plate. And so we pass around the plate and you give what you can for that particular family. Mm-hmm. That's what the blanket dance is exactly that. Mm-hmm. And was, I mean, it's beautiful. It's forever, you know, within his kids and they need a place to live and, and all that. When that last chapter brings in literally the housing where there's 50 slots, there's 50 Cherokee mm-hmm. homes. And it, am I right? Like basically like the first yep. 50 to like fill out the paperwork, get it? Get it. Yeah. So that, 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 that was lived. I did that. So that whole, the night before stayed up all night, a rainstorm came in, Mm -hmm. um, was super tired by that morning. And then when I woke up, there was like 25 of us stayed overnight. And then when I woke up, there was like a hundred people in line. Uh And then, so it's not like a first come first serve, right? You get to stand closer in line. Sure. But once you get into that room, it is a madhouse and you're just like filling out paperwork as much, as fast as you can. Um, and it, that was a real that's a real situation that really happened. And um, and I thought that that captured perfectly um, this kind of sense of like, I got to take care of my kids. You know, I need you know, I need to you know get this done. Um, and then also it, it juxtaposes well with Turtle Gimisato, his mother. Uh-huh. At the beginning, she's in that same system. My husband's been injured. How do I save my family? How do I, you know, keep us together? You know, so it's the same kind of uh, mentality, like a reflection between the mother and the son. Right. So, so that last chapter is meeting Lonnie or seeing Lonnie again, mm-hmm. um, where she says a really deep quote. You know, he's not sure if she's using she, or how much of it just the effects of being, you know, on drugs for so many years. But she says very simply, "I'm learning to love ever." Mm-hmm. And there's this beautiful idea of like, can we have more than one mom is what the kids ask. Yeah. Yeah. That's a a traditional indigenous practice is that we have multiple mothers who parent each other's kids in a, you know, very direct way. Not like a, I'm just going to be around, but like, I'm going to tell you what to do because you need to do the right thing. Um, So, but it's like, and he gets an opportunity to teach his his children that like, okay, yeah, that's an indigenous Uh concept. We have multiple mothers. um, And that's the way Cherokees have been for, you know, generations. Oh man. The, in the same way as like you talked about Tommy Orange, like his first, like his, I don't know if it's called a preface or a foreword or whatever, probably a preface to his book in the same way as that could be its own piece of art, just incredible work of art. Just the preface itself is just mind blowing. Your mm-hmm. last, your last chapter is so incredible. You talked about the community, you know, everyone's getting together It's raining. They're mm-hmm. sharing food. They're calling so-and-so, so-and-so comes over and brings over this, yeah. you know, just communal, 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 communal. Mm-hmm. It's just a beautiful, beautiful chapter. And I'm not going to ruin it by, you know, especially saying that the very end, I'm not going to yeah. ruin it by saying if ever it gets to the front of the line or at least gets to within the 50, but, yeah. um, but just a beautiful ending. And just that chapter itself could be its own book or short story, you know? 
Oh, thank you. Yeah. No, yeah, I thought that was, um, yeah, I very much wanted to end on that kind of a note where we get to see where Ever gets to, you know, implement the teachings that he's been, mm-hmm. you know, like, did, you know, did it work? You know, is he going to step up for family? Is right. he going to step up for community? Is he going to be a healing force as opposed to a destructive one? Hmm. I wonder maybe just en- ending up with kind of like the title mm-hmm. and just ideas of like community and home. Like, are you, are you calling for a blanket dance for the world? Are you, are you the one calling for a blanket dance? What, what, what is, I guess, saying about community? I think that, you know, I think there is a certain dynamic to the novel, especially this, this larger theme with home and land that, um, you know, I guess in that sentimental way. And there's a lot of sentimental elements in this novel. Um, it is definitely an emotional experience for mm-hmm. sure um, in that, you know, unifying all of us together. Um, so especially when we look at tur- Baby Turtle or mm-hmm. Tortuga Bebe yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and her, her whole energy is that her whole, her whole existence is about unifying and healing um, old trauma, old, old wounds that we don't want to let go. Mm. We need to let them go and we need to come together, but for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I am calling for a blanket dance. So, I mean, I, I mean, you, you, you pulled off, it's so difficult to do. I know in my amateur writing, it's so difficult to have a realistic story that is also positive or hopeful Again, without, you know, without being Mickey Mouse and woo and, you know, mm-hmm. like a yeah. kid's fairy tale, you just, you pulled it off. I mean, there are, you know, obviously very, you know, many negative experiences that happen throughout the book, but it is a, a positivity that really just leaves you, leaves you beaming. And that's a hard book. It's an impossible book to just leave alone. I'm not, I'm not going to just go in my, about my daily life tomorrow and be like, yeah, all right. Like, like the great books do, it changes you even, even just a little bit. So again, oh, congrats, congrats so much. And thanks for talking to me about it. Yeah, no, thank you, Pete. Yeah, thank you for all that was really in depth what you just did i appreciate that <laughs> tremendously though yeah so i mean I'm, I'm i'm super excited that i got to do this with you and we got to hang out we get to talk like this this was pretty amazing i i appreciate you i'd love to know what's um what's coming up in the future for you so i got a uh, second book polishing on my end is polishing yeah. um, once i once it gets to the editor um it's probably going to be a lot more to do um <laughs> But um, yeah, that second book is you know pretty close. And then also I have a third book in a first draft, mm. and I actually thought it was pretty um, minimal. I opened it back up just I think yesterday, and it was it's a little meatier than I thought it was. So okay. I might be further along than I thought I was on the on the third book. But yeah, definitely still working on other novels, um, similar themes where we're looking at Kiowa, um, Cherokee community, Tahlequah Latin intersections, mm. and then we also have these. Um, um, nods or um, even um, trips into into Mexico where we're kind of playing back and forth with that border, especially within the context of family. Is uh-huh. what I'm so wow, wow. Yeah. Do, you, do you think you'll ever go nonfiction? Um, I don't know. I've always just been a fiction writer. Yeah. You know, like I like to I like to embellish and um, hmm. and, and entertain. So um, a lot of what I write is it is kind of based on real life situations, mm-hmm. like the situation where um uh baby turtle had passed away like that um really happened to me you know me i had really lost a daughter in those exact circumstances um but there's a lot in that particular chapter that's just completely made up you know um the emotional part of it is real but there's all the stuff surrounding it is radically you know different and it's it's all fiction for sure um but i, I like doing that i like taking like something that happened to a friend and um and just like okay then I'm gonna go down this rabbit hole and this rabbit sure, hole sure. and I create this really complex world yeah um, so I enjoy doing that you're definitely a world builder so this this book would would look awesome on the screen like so obviously you play yourself in that small 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 cameo role with the books <laughs> who play who plays who plays ever oh my goodness oh that's a good <laughs> that's a good question uh, West Studi has this well he has a son not him Colin. but okay I was gonna say go Colin Studi. I think he would be amazing. Yeah. Amazing how yeah, old? Yeah. How old is Colin? Approximately? Is he like? Um, he's in. I don't. Know, I want to say he's probably late twenties, early thirties. Okay, so he plays. Okay, yeah. So he might be the like the you know the older right at the, right at the end there. All right. So yeah. Well, well, shout out any you know social social media like you know any particular bookstores you love us to buy the book. I know it's available everywhere, but um, you know any like I said social media and, and contact info. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm on Twitter, Instagram. My Instagram's getting bigger. Yeah. Um, it's always been like my hierarchy, like Twitter, Facebook, and then Instagram. Okay. Um, but yeah, but I've been, I've been noticing, 
I've, you know, gotten a lot of interactions on Instagram. So I've been growing it. Good. So Instagram for sure. Um, and then also as far as like local bookstores, you know, two fond of books here in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, okay. they, I might go in there and I sign all of their copies. So if you want like an autographed, um, a copy of the book that would to find a books talk Oklahoma. They have a website and you can order it and it'll be signed when it gets to you. Very cool. Again, uh, I want to thank you so much and just wish you great luck. And maybe we can talk when the second or the third book comes out. Yeah, I'd be happy to do it. Yeah. Appreciate thank you so Pete. much. Thank what you. A, Pete. What a pleasure yeah. it's been today to speak to Oscar Hokia. Continue good luck to him with his writing. I look so forward to continuing to follow his career. You can now subscribe to this podcast on Apple, leave a five-star review you can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills at Will Podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode is Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. Both songs used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 141 with Ingrid Rojas Contreras, whose first novel, Fruit of the Drunken Tree, was the silver medal winner in first fiction from the California Book Awards and a New York Times editor's choice. Her essays and short stories have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, BuzzFeed, Nylon, and Guernica, among others. Her latest, The Man Who Can Move Clouds, has been universally beloved, beloved and covered on NPR and the New York Times. That episode will air on September 6th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Oscar Hokia, whose work, like Waiting for a Blanket Dance, gives you chills at will. Mm-hmm.